Thanks, Martin. On Christmas Day, 1814, a Yorkshireman named Samuel Marsden stood on the beach at Paihia, which is a little town in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand's far north, and he preached to a small collection of people. This was the first ever time that the good news of Jesus had been proclaimed anywhere in the country that is now called New Zealand. From that small beginning, Marsden established a mission that worked with both the growing number of Europeans and also the local Māori uh, iwi, the indigenous people, the tribe of Napui. Nearly 200 years later, I, another Englishman, although not from the fine county of Yorkshire, find myself living in New Zealand, aiming to take the very same good message, good news message of Jesus to a very different New Zealand. Why? A couple of weeks ago, you may have been in this room as young Sue, a Korean, told exciting stories about mission in Dongolas, Sudan. What drives a Korean family to move to rural Sudan? Today we've heard from Hannah, about to leave Worcester and head to Madagascar, also for the cause of Jesus. Every place needs to hear the good news about Jesus. That is what mission is. Yeah, mission is not just out there somewhere. Mission is also as Martin has prayed, talking about Jesus and living for Jesus with friends at school, colleagues in your lunch break, family both near and far. In New Zealand, in Sudan, in Madagascar and here in Gloucester, Christians are often met with ambivalence, apathy, or even antagonism to the message about Jesus. Millions are hostile to Christian mission. The attempt to convert people to Jesus is perceived as a great moral wrong in our age. It's essential, therefore, for those of us who are Christians to understand why mission is so central to the call of the church. Mission is at the very heart of who God is and what he wants his people to do. As one church leader has pithily said, it's not the church of God that has a mission, it's the God of mission that has a church. Mission is his idea and his plan, we are merely joining in. Today, as we thought and reflected, is Remembrance Sunday, when we specifically think about and thank those who have sacrificed so much for Britain in various wars to keep Britain a free land. We're also thinking about the mission of God, the good news that we can be free of sin and f- live as free men and women thanks to the ultimate sacrifice, that of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So if you do have a Bible, do go to Genesis chapter 12, Thanks to uh, Liz and to Meng for reading it. I'm going to pray before we look at our passage today. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can remember all the sacrifices of so many who have gone before us to enable Britain to continue to be a free land. Thank you for the greater sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, sacrificing his life in our place so that we can be free from a life of sin and death. Thank you that you've given us a job of living out and telling out that great news to those with whom you've placed us. Thank you that to be a Christian is to think mission. Thank you for this International Sunday and thank you for the opportunity to look at Genesis 12 to see afresh how you are a missionary God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All Christians are to live 
as missionaries, to live for Jesus and to speak for Jesus in the communities in which these place us, this day, this week, this month, this year. But you and I will only persevere in being missionaries for God if we have biblical incentives, if we see that mission really is at the heart of the Bible story. And it's the theme that unites, drives all the way through the Bible. We're just going to look at Genesis 12 today. But let's just set the scene. In Genesis 1 and 2, right at the very beginning, God makes the world and it is good. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin by wanting to rule their own lives rather than to have God as their ruler. As a consequence, they're separated from each other and from God. Every problem in the world relates back to this first sin problem. If Genesis 3 is the cause, everything else is the effect. In Genesis 4 to 11, the people try all sorts of things to reverse the effects of this sin problem, but things just get worse and worse. There seems to be nothing that is capable of dealing with the human problem of sin. And then, then, in Genesis 12, God speaks. He speaks to Abraham. Abraham later gets called Abraham, so we'll just call him Abraham. But who is this Abraham? Well, according to verse 4, he was a 75-year-old man, not a follower of God, because he was from Haran. And in verse 5, we learn that he was married to Sarai, and they had a nephew called Lot, and we know that they were rich, that they had lots and lots of stuff. That's that word, accumulated. It's all quite amazing. Amazing and graciously, God speaks to the 75-year-old pagan man, and it changes Abraham's life. God just turned up. No advance warning, and he speaks. And this is what he says. He says, leave, Abraham. Leave your home. That's an interesting way to start, isn't it? God had never spoken to Abraham before, and now he, unannounced, just turns up and says, leave. No, hello, Abraham. I'm God. How are you doing? Just leave. What would you do? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You're 75. Just paid off your mortgage. You've reconciled yourself to the fact that you and your beautiful wife won't be having any kids or any grandkids. You've just retired. You quite enjoy being in the same town as all your friends and your family. Leave? You've only just got comfortable. God says leave. He doesn't tell Abraham where he's taking him. He just asks him to trust him. God is asking Abraham to trust him. I did and I do struggle with this. I'm not very good at trusting God. I used to pray daily, still do occasionally. Lord, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything for you. But please, please, not London. <laughs> Put conditions on God. Despite that, the Lord was and is gracious and sent me to New Zealand, about as far away from London as you can get. Abraham was being asked to trust God. It's the same for us today. Do we trust God with our lives and our livelihood? In verse 1 to 3, God gives lots of promises to Abraham, and the outworking of these promises fill up the rest of the Bible. And one word comes up a lot in these verses. I, 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 I. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve say I a lot. Here is God's answer to Adam and Eve's sinfulness. I, says God, will do this. I will do that. Let's look at each of those promises, the I wills. There's land, land in verse 1. Go to the land I will show you. 
Or in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. There's people in verse 2. People, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make you into a great nation, says God to Abraham, but his wife is old and they're unable to have children. A great nation? That's quite odd when you're 75 and you're not even a father of one. Yet today, over a billion people are part of the nation of faith in Jesus, tracing the history back to Abraham. God blesses Abraham by making him an old, childless man, the father of a great nation. In fact, the name Abraham the name given to him by God later on in Genesis, means father of a multitude. There's land, there's people, and there's blessing. Verse 2 and 3, I will make your name great, says God, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. I will make your name great, says God. Interestingly, the people in the previous chapter, chapter 11, those of Babel, later the region was called Babylon, they wanted two things that, uh, here in verse 2. They wanted to have a great name, and they wanted to be a great nation. Yet they didn't want God. In Babylon, it was their own pride wanting them to be great. Here, God is giving Abraham those things. It is grace. God loves all nations. God wants to bless the people across all the earth, in every land. And he starts with Abraham, a regular pagan old guy from Babylon. Compare this verse with Revelation 7 at the end of the Bible, where we read that in the new heaven, people from every single nation are present. And it all starts here in Genesis. The three promises of God to Abraham are of people, land, and of blessing. And each of these themes is expanded upon in subsequent chapters in Genesis. Take land. After Abraham had generously invited Lot to choose where he wanted to settle in this new land, God says to Abraham in Genesis 13, verse 14, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. That's a lot of land. What about people? In chapter 15 of Genesis, God in verse 5 took Abraham outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. I can imagine Abraham looking up and counting the stars. One, two, five, uh, ten, thirty. And then he gives up. Counting the stars on a clear night is an impossible task. Then God said, so shall your offspring be. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Here's Abraham, who has no child. He's now in his 80s, probably. His wife Sarah is not much younger. Yet Abraham believed what God said. And because he trusted God, God accepted him as righteous in his sight. It's grace, again. And thirdly, there's the blessing. I will bless you. Time and again, we read that in Genesis 12. Already God has accepted Abraham as righteous in chapter 15. Or to use the language of the New Testament, he has justified him by faith. No greater blessing is conceivable. It is the foundational blessing of the covenant of grace, which a few years later God described as this to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. And verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant 
between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. People, land, and blessing. But what's all that got to do with mission and International Sunday? For that, we've got to see not just the promise, but the fulfillment of the promise. Fulfillment of promises. It can be a tricky thing to work out sometimes, but the many New Testament writers understood that promises in the Old Testament have three, often have three different types of fulfillment, past, present, and future. For the past, the fulfillment was what happened in the life of the Old Testament people of God. For the present, there was a fulfillment in the gospel and in, in, in the church, us in the here and now. And in the future, fulfillment is when promises are ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's, we're going to take each of those promises to Abraham and examine them through this triple fulfillment lens to see what mission has to do with those promises. Firstly, the promise and its immediate uh, fulfillment, people. After Abraham, back in the Old Testament, God repeated his promise down the generations to Isaac and to Jacob. In the book of Exodus, there were so many people that the Egyptians enslaved them and put them to work for fear of uprising. The people continued to grow in number through much of the Old Testament. So people... Lots of people in the Old Testament. What about land? Much of the Old Testament is about the people of God moving to the land of God. In fact, it was the promised land. And although it did take generations to get there, and eventually they were taken away and carted out of there, God graciously returned them to that land after their captivity in Babylon. So yes, land and people. Surely not blessing as well. Well, sort of. If by blessing we mean God continuing to love his people despite their sinfulness and disobedience, then God does bless the Old Testament people of God. But this is the promise that is fulfilled most weakly in the Old Testament itself. For although God is faithful to his people, and he keeps rescuing them, they keep going back to their old ways and sinning. In addition, it's just about Israel, the Jews. What about other nations? What about the internationals? On to the middle stage of fulfillment that of the gospel or the church, which includes us now. People. Well, this is huge. Right at the start of the New Testament in Matthew 1, we get taken back to Abraham in the genealogy of Jesus. I used to think that Matthew 1 was a boring chapter of the Bible. You're not supposed to say that, but I did think that. It's just a long list of names. And then I was speaking to a, a friend in New Zealand who became, who's, who's Māori, an uh, indigenous person of New Zealand. And he became a Christian through the chapter of Matthew 1. Because for the Māori, everything is about genealogy. It's their whakapapa. It's the language they use. Everything is traced back to the, to the great migration from Hawiki to New Zealand, which was about a thousand years ago. Genealogy is very, very important in a way that it isn't for me. I trace my ancestry back to 1905. Genealogy. The New Testament explains it's not just enough to be physically descended from Abraham. There's a spiritual link too. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there isn't a barrier to anyone becoming a Christian or being a descendant of Abraham. Some estimate there are one billion Christians on earth at the moment. It's a lot of people. So yes, God's promise to Abraham in terms of people is indeed fulfilled. People, land. 
Because there are Christians all over the world, in every country on earth, the words of the Dutch politician and the philosopher Cooper ring true. There is not one square inch of the whole world of which Jesus does not cry, mine. I was privileged enough to work with a student called Khalid a few years ago, who was a student in New Zealand. Uh, he uh, is from Saudi Arabia. Uh, he doesn't want to return to Saudi Arabia. He wants to stay in New Zealand. He's doing a, a PhD at the moment. I met him when he was doing an undergraduate degree. He was just exploring about who Jesus was because he didn't really know anything about Jesus. There's not much access to Bible or Christians in Saudi Arabia. And the more he understood, he, he was amazed and he said, but yeah, there are no Christians in Saudi Arabia. I said, now that, my friend Khalid, you are wrong. There might be Christians underground. There might not be very many. You might number the Christians on, on one hand, but there will be Christians in Saudi Arabia. There are Christians in every country. People, land, and blessing. Well, it's only because of the cross of Jesus there are lots of people, lots of land, and lots of blessing. The cross is the blessing. Paul talks of this at length in Galatians 3, all about relating people, land, and blessing promises of God to Abraham and the church. And he sums it up in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, descendant, according to the promise. According to the promise. That's amazing enough, but there's the third, the future fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. The book of Revelation gives the vision of God's people, so many multitudes, too many to number in a land, heaven, not a land flowing with milk and honey, but a land irrigated with springs of living water. And everybody in that place is only there because of the blessing of Jesus and all gather round his throne to worship. Here are the descendants of Abraham, more than the grains of the sand, more than the stars in the sky, gathered from every nation. It's a glorious vision, and it's all yet to come. And it's this vision that drives us to mission. It's because God is a missionary God that he's working his purposes out to bring that day about. We're going to hear more after lunch from Hannah and myself about the way that God has got, in, got us involved in, in his mission in other places. But I want us to see more than that. I want us to feel that it's for all of us. So when we invite a friend to church, that's mission. When we run Activate, that's mission. When we pray with a colleague, that's mission. When we help fund what someone else is doing elsewhere in the world, that is mission. When we mention at our football club that we're a Christian, that is mission. When you pray for a sibling to become a Christian, that is mission. Of course, you may not be a Christian here this morning. In which case, join the team. Become a Christian. Become a descendant of Abraham and enjoy all God's good promises to you. Last year, I was hugely privileged to be part of the quadrennial, it's a big word today, quadrennial IFES World Assembly. IFES is the international work of which I, working with Tertiary Students Christian Fellowship in New Zealand, is a small part. Every four years, some staff and some students from around the world gather to plan, to pray, to laugh, to cry. Apparently, it's the most diverse gathering in the world outside of the United Nations. I did indeed meet people from countries I'd never even heard of, which was slightly embarrassing. I heard stories of the same God and the same message being lived and spoken in incredibly diverse situations, from Bosnia-Herzegovina to Malawi to Jamaica to 
Japan to Ecuador to France to Tonga. Through it all, God is working to bring many to salvation and repentance in him. Also at that, uh, that conference, it was great because I could say, look, I'm from New Zealand and everybody wanted to hear much more because every main plenary session, there was an apology. And the apology was that they had a big world map because it's a world gathering. But New Zealand wasn't on that map. And uh, we, made, we made a lot of noise about that. And everybody said, you're from New Zealand. Oh, come here. We had a flyer last week about today, which is great. I'd love to see a map on the flyer. And New Zealand wasn't on that, far, on that map either. Just kind of tucked behind Australia. Australia. But the goal, the goal of mission is every tribe, every language, every age, every ethnicity, every hair color, every skin color, every ability, every gender. To be gathered around the throne of Jesus is worship, in worship. American pastor John Piper puts it well, mission exists because worship of Jesus does not. We are all called by God to be involved in living for Jesus and speaking for Jesus where he's placed us. So that together we work to see more people become Christians. We should pray. We should give money. We should go. All so that people from New Zealand, from Sudan, from Madagascar, and from Gloucester get to be with Jesus now and into eternity. But that's all really, really big, isn't it? Well, here's some uh, last slide for some practical suggestions I found helpful in thinking about being part of world mission as well as local mission. Firstly, pray. Pray. Adopt a country to pray for because it's just too hard to pray for the whole world. I know we're supposed to, but it's too hard. I first did this, I adopted a country um, half a lifetime ago as a new Christian. I randomly adopted Djibouti. Now, Morris will know where Djibouti is. <laughs> but anybody else know where Djibouti is? You've been there. Wonderful. I've only met very few people who've been to Djibouti. That's great. So, uh, it's the whole, uh, East Africa, near Somalia and Ethiopia. A very small country. And I uh, decided to pray for Djibouti, and I still do. And I continue to pray for both countries. And I have a, uh, a Djiboutian uh, banknote, um, which I hadn't seen until recently. A friend of mine who I know is a missionary in Djibouti sent me uh, a 1,000 Djibouti franc note, which is apparently about, about, worth about three pounds. And I have out my Bible. And when I'm flicking through my Bible, I see the note, I see the banknote, and I pray for Djibouti. Adopt a country, get a banknote, put it in your Bible. But, beware what you pray for. I'm the Englishman, remember, who never wanted to leave England, let alone the UK. Yet after praying for Djibouti and for New Zealand, I now find myself living in New Zealand. Maybe one day I'll live in Djibouti. Adopt a country and get to know about that country and pray for that country. Get a banknote to aid prayer for that country. Secondly, not just pray, but money. Give. Give money. Money is needed to make everything happen. All of us in this room, by virtue of living in the UK, are rich. It's easy to think we're not rich because we compare ourselves with those that have more rather than the many people who have less. I know we in the UK aren't as well off as we once were. But we are still Western and we're still rich. And we have a responsibility and a joy to fund missions in other parts of the world. I myself am funded by individuals who have a particular interest in student mission in New Zealand and the Pacific. One lady who does that lives here in the UK she donates part of her pension each month. She reminds me that she doesn't really know about universities, 
And she doesn't really know about New Zealand. But by giving regularly to help fund my work, she feels she's involved and she's invested in a country. That's an excellent attitude. And one we should adopt for Sudan or Madagascar or France or Ecuador or Latvia or whatever it is that you, you're involved in and choose to adopt. Thirdly, go. Consider going from the UK to other places to plant churches, train leaders, cook meals, teach kids, fix boats, help accountancy firms. The list is endless. I was speaking with one mission agency in New Zealand, and it prides itself on being able to place anyone with a degree somewhere in the world. They're not just interested in graduates, but they recognize that many countries will only give visas to graduates. But whatever your educational background, consider going. Or go to visit. Abbey Church is sort of twinned with a church in Diyarbakir as Martin prayed, in, in Turkey. And some here have, have been to Diyarbakir and experienced the differences between Turkish mission and Gloucestrian mission. It's been my particular pleasure to host some in this room, in our house in New Zealand, and quiz them about their experience of the wider church in New Zealand and, and chuckle when they say, oh, I didn't know it would be like that. So there's some practical steps in the pray, give, and go area. I hope they help. But for now, let's, let's finish with a prayer. Lord Jesus, on a good day, we long for so many to be round your throne, thanking you for saving us from sin and death. On a bad day, we simply ignore that reality. Forgive us, we ask, for keeping the good, the great news about you to ourselves. Help us by your spirit, we ask, to be imaginative and bold this day, tomorrow, and each day in how we communicate your love and your grace to those around us who are apathetic. Help us to have concern for those in far-off lands who don't yet know you. Help us to be diligent in praying for those people. Please save many so that round your throne is such diversity. Please help us to be diligent in giving sacrificially to fund international mission work, to see it as a joy to partner with others in places we'll never see. Please help us to consider going to other places if you will it. And finally, thank you so much for coming to earth, for being willing to submit to God the Father and for your death on the cross and your resurrection that means so many can now be descendants of Abraham and be part of your people, land and blessing, the promises of so long ago. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.